Welcome to Meet the Actor at the Apple Store Soho in New York. Please welcome this evening's moderator, Josh Horowitz. Hi, guys. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming out this afternoon uh, for I th what I think is going to be a real treat. We have one of our, or truly our finest actors of um, stage, of television, and of course film. His newest film uh, I've checked out twice. It's a, it's a really fascinating piece of work uh, called Experimenter. Uh, as we sit down today, it opens tomorrow, so you'll be able to check it out very soon. But in the meantime, before we get to M Mr. Peter Sarsgaard, let's play the trailer for his new intriguing film. Check it out. Rug, pillow, hair, grass. Incorrect. 165 volts, strong shock. Let me out of here. I will not be part of the experiment anymore. He, he says he's not going to go on. Please continue. He, he says he doesn't want to go on. We must continue. In nearly every case, the essential results are the same. They hesitate, sigh, tremble, and groan, but they advance to the last switch, 450 volts, because they're politely told to. I'm Stanley Malcolm. And this is an experiment. The man in the other room wasn't being shocked. Let me out of here! Can you please go check that everything's okay? Continue, please. We wanted to get true reactions from people. Oh. The experiment's about obeying orders. You could be dead in there. Please continue. Oh. Social relations. What does that mean? Everything from the way people talk in elevators to the study of formity, authority. Oh. How does human beings participate in destructive, inhumane acts? Why is defiance the anomaly instead of the norm? Why didn't I stop? Because he told me to continue. Let me out! You tell yourself. Why don't I have a choice? I wouldn't do that. Have you done it? I'd never do that. That really hurts! I don't like hurting anyone. Let me out! <laughs> this part's where the experiment really begins. Your father's turning into a fictional character. Critics insist you're callous, unethical, deceitful, no one repugnant was forced. You're invested in the idea of authority and you love lording it over all of us. The person has a choice. Son of a bitch! He or she chooses obedience, awareness, liberation, life. <laughs> so as you can tell this is a, a fascinating true story told in a very unorthodox cool manner uh it has an amazing cast led by our guest tonight let's give it up for one of the finest actors working today mr peter sarsgaard <laughs> um Congratulations on the film again, man. This is a great piece of work. Thanks a lot. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, I think they got a sense from the trailer about a little bit of Stanley Milgram. How much do you think the audience needs to, to know, should know going into this? I mean, I, I, every movie, I think the least you know, the better. We you should know, just leave. So. We should just get off <laughs> the set. Oh, yeah, drop the mic. Um, you know, I, I guess no, from the trailer, you know that the shocks are not real. So um, the basis for his most famous experiment, which was about blind obedience to malevolent authority, was um, there's only one person in that room that is not part of the experiment. It's the person that thinks that they're shocking someone in another room when they get a wrong answer. 
and the shocks go from mild to XXX danger. And um, the yelling in the other room is all pre-recorded. And the guy in the other room is frankly just sitting there reading a book or something like that. The doctor who's in the room is also an actor. And sometimes the person giving the shocks, you know, starts to get uncomfortable because what they're doing is sadistic. And, um, you know, they, they'd say, I, please, I have to stop. And the doctor would usually just say, the experiment requires that you continue. And, um, and they would disregard their own feelings of what's right and wrong, abdicate responsibility, say things like, this is on you. You know, I'm going to keep doing it, but it's your responsibility. And um, Stanley Milgram grew up in the Bronx in the 40s, Jewish, parents from Eastern Europe. Uh, the influences for why he came up with this experiment are fairly obvious, which is, had a lot to do with the Holocaust, trying to understand how an entire country followed one person. Obviously, not everyone in Germany was wanting to kill Jewish people. So I think that's probably the basis of the experiment, but he rarely talked about that. Would you have been as interested in this subject matter if it were done in somewhat of a more conventional biopic manner? How much of, no. of, of the fact that of the approach to this is the selling point for you? The approach is everything for me. I mean, we shot the film in 20 days. Um, I don't like biopics, <laughs> um, pretty strictly speaking. I'd rather read a book about the person's life and get all of the details. But this book, or this movie, operates kind of like a box of mirrors. You have to think about this, this most famous experiment. Now, he had a number, like six degrees of separation, which we all know is from Stanley Milgram as well. But the, it's a movie about the various levels of what reality is. And I would say, actually, even venture to say that social psychology is a venture into trying to understand what reality is. What is the reality between you and I right now? What is the reality of this entire room? What is really going on with all of us as individuals and as a collective unit? And um, so the person who thinks they're giving shocks has one reality. The doctor, the guy playing the doctor and the guy playing the person getting shocked have another reality. Stanley Milgram on the other side of a two-way mirror has another reality. There's a movie within the movie in this where an actor named Keelan Lutz from the Twilight series is playing um, William, Shatner, right? William yeah. Shatner in a movie about Stanley Milgram. And I'm complaining that he's not Jewish and he's playing me. And of course, I'm not Jewish and I'm playing Stanley Milgram. So this movie, <laughs> this movie has all these various levels of reality. And I would even venture to say that the candid reality that we're used to kind of loving from actors where they don't know the camera's on them, behavior is being revealed that's not intentional, that sort of lack of intentionality, and we go, oh, I'm, he's not telling me this, I'm just learning this by watching him, is something we dip our toe in and also then abandon. I talk directly to the camera at times because that's actually a kind of modern idea about what reality is. You see that there's a Gary Winogrand photograph in this. Gary Winogrand, Lee Freelander, all of those sort of, you know, snapshot uh, Leica photographers from the, the 60s and 70s were trying to capture a candid reality. Marlon Brando was acting a certain kind of candid acting where we feel like we're spying on him, which has become very popular. So 
as an actor, I got interested in all these different levels of reality going on and not being asked to do the thing where it's like it's Christmas and my mom's dying of cancer and you get to see how I'm upset and not upset and all this sort of, you know, melodrama stuff I'm normally asked to play. How much of that comes, how much of the interest in that kind of thing in this kind of form that's breaking the form in many ways comes from having done it a while and done, you know, your share of different kinds of films, uh, different degrees of conventionality. Um, I mean, I, I guess I'm asking, is, this, is the subject matter, is the approach to this film something that inherently you always were interested in, or does it come after doing this for, you know, a couple decades in, like, it needs to intrigue yeah. you on another level? Yeah, when point. I first started acting, I wanted to be, you know, Sean Penn. I wanted to be... Marlon Brando, it's like my heroes of acting all do that kind of acting where I'm talking about where you feel like you're spying on them in their behavior. You glean things from them that you don't think they're necessarily projecting directly at you. It's a wonderful, it's my favorite kind of acting. But yeah, I don't think I would have done this straight out of the gate. I mean, I'm acting with an elephant in this. I sing from South Pacific, some enchanted evening, which I'm not gonna do for you tonight. Um, but we will bring out the elephant. The elephant will yeah, come. We'll bring out the elephant later. There was a real elephant. I, I acted with an elephant in this movie. Do why was the elephant there, and does it matter to you at all? Well, I mean, the elephant in the room is clearly the Holocaust, but um, it's also the obvious thing that we all choose to ignore. That kind of thing, whether from cognitive dissonance, because it would just blow our lives apart if we actually sat down and went like, oh my God, this is completely messed up that we're doing this. Or um, for some other reason, that sort of, um, that thing that is so completely obvious that it's easy to ignore. Um, you mentioned breaking the fourth wall. When you're, when you're doing that, who do you imagine you're talking to? Are you, are you thinking about that? And is, is there a certain, I don't know, expertise or what are you bringing to that that's different than the rest of your work in the film? I did it differently than I have before. I've, I've actually talked into camera, I can immediately think of in one other movie, in The Dying Gall I talked into camera, but in that I was talking to my dead lover who was in the camera. Um, in this, Stanley did a lot of his own films and um, I was greatly influenced by that. He would, do, he would have this kind of forced casual style where he'd be sitting in a restaurant and the camera would come in and he would pretend for some reason to drink from a glass of wine. It was clear he was not drinking from it and he'd put it down. And then he'd begin talking about this very serious subject. But he would try to do it in a way that was clear you know, as if he was talking to someone who wasn't quite as smart as he was. And that, that interested me. You know, I, got, I rarely get interested in the real person. I don't care if they're real or not real. I, I, in this specific instance, because of these various levels of fiction that I'm talking about, my beard in the movie should have its own movie. Um, it's haunting. It's haunting. <laughs> Um, and actually, when my beard first gets introduced, I'm talking to an Abraham Lincoln impersonator who has the same beard, and I'm asking him if his accent is real and stuff like that, you know. Um, so, yeah, I guess I was, in some ways, talking to Stanley Milgram, you know. Um, but I also felt like I was a teacher. There was information that can be... It's not too difficult to understand, but I'm trying to communicate information. Um, 
which is a different task than I'm normally given. I'm always curious, I mean, all the issues that a film like this brings up, as actors on set and working with a filmmaker, when, when it comes, comes time to be on set, this is a 20-day shoot, as you said, this is very quick. Do you have time to kind of dig into kind of the, the broader uh, implications of the subjects you're dealing with? Like, when you're on set, is it just about getting the work in, or are you having oh, kind of deeper... movie goals? like this, I'm just like... <laughs> I'm just going every single scene. I mean, I would shoot like... Um, 12 pages in a day. I mean, I, that's a lot. Um, and just even in terms of memorization, you know, talking about things like the agentic state, um, which is an interesting concept, but I have to use the language that he would use, understand the terms that he uses, even just to wrap my head around the ideas to understand them for myself took time. Is that I mean, a necessary thing that you actually have to, I mean, this sounds like a stupid question, but I'm kind of serious. Do you actually have to know what you're talking about to deliver, you know what I mean, to deliver a speech like that? Or is yeah. it just in the manner that you deliver it that you can sell it? Well, if I don't understand it, you're certainly not going to understand it. I don't know if you've ever had a teacher who didn't understand what they were saying, but it's very difficult to follow them. Yeah. <laughs> um, talk to me a little bit about... Um, the filmmaker behind this, uh, as we said before, is 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 using some interesting uh, tricks in terms of breaking the fourth wall. Rear projection is used. I don't know if you guys know what that refers to, but basically, like it's like when you saw in old time movies, you know, driving in a in a car, you'd see kind of like the literally a, a something projected in the background. And less common the way we use it, which is like the entire room that we're in is projected on the wall yeah. with maybe a chair or two, and then the right. chair we're sitting on to match. So is that um, distracting on set or is that an is that like oh this is again I've never done this before this is exciting or is that is that uh, conducive or helpful or what to the process for you? I mean it takes you out of a a kind of literal reality puts you in a different place. It's more like uh, theater. Um, yeah, I mean, we did that for a number of reasons. One is that we shot it all in the Pfizer plant in Brooklyn, where they used to make Viagra. Now they make kimchi, I think. But um, Same difference. You know, maybe there's <laughs> Viagra in the kimchi. I would be careful when consuming kimchi from Brooklyn. Um, but... It, the the you know it was part of the speed of making this we would just throw another slide up on the wall we're in a different place i change outfits and it's a different scene and it's kind of amazing when you go to watch the movie um that it works it in the in reality i was unsure whether or not this would work where, where is um milgram standing in like the psychological community today like what is is he revered are there still questions about his methods today yeah, I mean, I think, I think it, it, it's not even whether or not his methods were okay. It's that that experiment in particular, the obedience to authority experiment, made it difficult for other social psychologists to do the experiments that they wanted to do because of the, the kind of public reaction to it. So I think a lot of social psychologists today go like, he set us back a little bit in terms, because he jumped the gun. Um, the information is valuable. I don't think anyone has a problem with that. It's just this idea that these people were lied to about what the experience was. They, they had the traumatic event of thinking they were shocking someone else, hurting them, and then told it was all okay. Um, but of course now we live in a world that I think is much different. We have shows like Punked, you know, where I, half the people on that show were being tortured, you know, if you really look at it. 
what, what kind of questions does uh, going through a process like this, discussing something like this for months on end, raise within you about obedience, about authority? What are the what are the issues you're still tackling with that you're wrestling with to this day? You think? Well, this thing of the agentic state. I mean, I think we could probably even see in this room right now. It's the idea that um, I was just following orders, or uh, it's store policy. That's a good one. It's store policy. Like, uh, I bought a toy for my daughter not long ago at a toy store. And I walked, like, the 20 feet out of the store. I gave it to her. It's broken. And uh, I went, oh, well, go get you a new one. I go back into the store, and the lady asked me for a receipt. I'm digging around. I'm like, you know, <laughs> I lost the receipt in 20 feet. I'm sorry. She said, well, you need a receipt. And I was like, yeah, no, but I just bought it from you. Like, you know me, right? You saw me buy it? So <laughs> it's me. No, no, no. I need a receipt. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's store policy. That idea that we'll just get rid of logic. We'll get rid of our own feelings, our own identity about what is right or wrong in the given situation. What's right is that I bought something from you and it's broken. And you should take it back. Store policy. What the f is that? I mean, um, so anyway, what I did, which is illegal, is um, when she wasn't looking, I put the broken toy back and I grabbed the toy that was not broken and I gave it to my crying daughter and everything was fine. The truth is I probably could have got arrested and the fact that I did it in front of a, my child, the child services could have come in and God knows what could have happened. But that idea of just following orders, it happens in the military, it happens in hospitals, it happens constantly and it drives most of us crazy. How, how were you raised in regards to like questioning authority? Were you were you the kind of kid that naturally did that? Were you an anti-authoritarian uh, kid from the start? Did you follow orders? Well, what, how would you describe yourself? Well, I'm an only child who grew up in. I went to twelve different schools, and you know, all the way up in, through high school. Um, I lived in Southern Illinois. Missouri, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Connecticut. So I always felt out of place. And also being an only child who was allowed to do whatever he wanted, I didn't even have a concept of authority. So whenever I ran up against it, I found it shocking and appalling. You know, and I would find a way to weasel my way through it and get what I wanted. Not typically at the expense of other people, but, but just what felt right to me. Yeah. I'm curious about authority on a film set too, where like what uh, the situations where I'm sure you've had all sorts of situations on a film set where you have that startling realization that maybe the director doesn't know what they're doing or you don't agree with what they're doing. Um, hopefully that's a rare circumstance, but how do you, <laughs> how do you negotiate that when you're supposed to be looking to this man or woman and then you realize you can't count on them? Well, you do films for a variety of reasons. I've gone into films knowing I was going to be in that situation, but you're doing films for, you know, many reasons. Sometimes you do films to remind people that Peter Sarsgaard's an actor, and you know it's going to be on 3,500 screens, and you know you can do a decent job, and you don't need the help of the director. So if they offer it, I politely refuse it. Um, other times it's a collaboration. It really depends, but um, I look for help. I accept help. Um, I like collaborating. Um, I would say it happens 50% of the time. Um, but, you know, a lot, it, as an actor, 
everyone's got this sort of idea that you're a lot of the times like a kind of idiot savant. And if you can use that to your advantage where you go like, you know, they tell you something and you look like you're really trying to understand. And then when the camera rolls, it's like you're so in the world of it that you've forgotten. And then they come back and they tell you again and you go, right, 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 right. And you sort of encourage this idea that you're not a thinking person, but you're more like a, a dog, you know. Um, Michael was somebody I, I, that, this is the first time you've worked together, yes? Uh, um, how did he approach you with this project? As I understand it, he was, from what, from what I read, he was sending you material that wasn't necessarily the script at first. Is that true? Did it start with the script or was started it? Started with material. So yeah. that's, that's an interesting, that's an odd circumstance, yeah. I would say, right? Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, the material was fascinating. I read several books about him. Um, he filmed, I think one of the reasons he's become so significant in popular culture is he filmed the last two days of the obedience to authority experiments. These were experiments that went on for several years. So like just the last little bit of it was filmed. And to watch that is incredibly helpful as an actor to just see the actual behavior. And what you see with these people is 65% of the people went all the way and gave someone what they thought potentially could be a dangerous dose of electricity. Said XXX danger. They had been screaming, they had stopped screaming, and none of them did it gleefully. That makes me happy. No one like laid on the most intense switch and like went like, how's that? Most, some of them were weeping, many of them were really uncomfortable. Um, like I said, abdicating responsibility. To me, that makes me happy, you know. Have you watched your own work in this? Are you one of those actors that hates to watch himself? Or are you okay? Can you be self-analytical? I, I go see my movies if I personally would go see that movie. I don't go see it just because I'm in the movie. Right. I saw this movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need to know. Yeah. Uh, what percent, I'm curious, like, what percentage of the time are you, like, are you hard on yourself? Are you hard on the films you, you're in? You're obviously very proud of this one. You've been talking a lot about this one. How often, frankly, does that happen? It's always a... Well, you talk about movies for a variety of reasons, and I think one of the things about this film is I think this is something everybody needs to think about. In what ways do we not follow our own instincts about what's right and wrong and just go like, oh, well, I guess they said it, so I'm going to do it. Even if you go like, that's messed up, but you still do it. Um, it's, it's scary to stand up. Um, but, you know, you're asking like what percentage of the time? Oh, God. I like maybe 30% of the movies I do. <laughs> That's a good, that's pretty good in most people's jobs. Out. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's really good. Uh, luckily, this is part of the 30%. Uh, let's take a, a look at a clip from Experimenter. Eighth floor, please. Are we going to the same party? Probably. You know Doris Seisman? Saul Horowitz invited me. Uh, I never heard of him. Should we continue talking and wait till we're properly introduced? <laughs> Thank you.
It's funny, I keep saying them, I just realized, I keep talking about the movie as being like a box of mirrors, you know, like what is the reality and everything's reflecting. Then, of course, there you go, box of mirror. mirrors. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, uh, the woman that, that Winona is playing, Stanley's wife, was, she's, she's around and she was, you talked to her, she's yes? She's not only around, she's in the movie. Yeah. I actually acted a scene with her where she called me Stanley and I called her Sasha and we acted the scene as husband and wife. Um, a portion of it made into the movie, but it was really fascinating to do. His brother is in the movie. Um, yeah, we're kind of mixing things here. It's great. Let me guess, you're a Charlie Kaufman fan as well. Most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> is that odd? I mean, this is obviously, this is, sounds like the kind of film where you don't, and, and you know, most people, 99% of movie, uh, pe the uh, population rather, probably have heard of maybe Stanley's name, but don't know what he looks like, et cetera. So you don't necessarily have to do an impression, an imitation, but you do have family literally in the movie on set is that something to negotiate as an actor you've played real people before like where do you stand on sort of like how slavishly you have to um you know go to the letter of the law of their life i only really worry about that if i'm playing someone like bobby kennedy and i won't play bobby kennedy um because it's it's incredibly difficult how, you know if you go to play someone that famous who had that kind you know that specific kind of voice and style you're spending all your time on the surface and it's incredibly difficult i played stanley when it suited me to play stanley otherwise i was whatever i was you know i mix things if they're helpful um let's open this up to this wonderful audience some questions from you guys for mr sarsgaard Peter, uh, hearing you speak here, I w uh, I'm, I'm expecting to see you in some more comedies. You've not done a lot of comedies, but uh, you've done some very important films. And it's ironic that, or maybe not ironic, that you were also in Kinsey. So here you are dealing with two people that have dealt with uh, uh, situations that have, have had huge psychological impacts on our culture. Do you feel that puts an extra burden on your shoulders? or And then you need to then do that comedy because you've done that... Uh, I mean, God, to me, the thing is, so comedy is at its greatest, to me, what everybody wants to do. Unfortunately, with comedy, it's also what sells best in our culture. So people cheapen it quite easily to try to get the most money. So most comedies that you read pander to the most people because... It's very easy to do, you know, play, you want to get your movie on 3,500 screens. I'm more interested in material that's not trying to get the biggest audience, that's just trying to express something that's true to itself. It's very hard to find a comedy like that. Um, but yeah, I've been developing a comedy about mental health in the United States, which I think is hilarious, especially if you walk around and see all the saw this guy today, a homeless guy who was clearly mentally ill, take off all of his clothes down to his underwear and start cleaning someone's windshield with his clothes. And, you know, you just go like, it's so depressing <laughs> that it's hilarious. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I felt the need to develop my own material in that department. And a lot of, you, you look at a lot of the great comedies that come around and the lead actor in it is the one that's responsible for the material. And because I'm not by trade a comedian, it's more 
difficult for me. I, you know, like you rarely get handed like the script that's just floating around that's got great comedic material. Yeah. Hi, I just got here and didn't even realize that you were speaking here today, so it's a great surprise. I just want to start off with that. Um, uh, what, I don't know how to say this without sounding cliche, but what kind of starting words would you give to an actor who's kind of just getting in there and starting out? Like, I'll refine it. What, what would you... I can answer that. Yeah? Yeah. Like process or something like that? Well, getting started, I would say if you don't write find a writer, collaborate with them, and make your own material. It's easy enough to grab one of these cameras in here and film it, and then some of this software and edit it, and get it out there in whatever way. Create something yourself, because Hollywood's not doing it. And, um, you know, like I said, and there's a lot of great young writers out there that can't get their material done, and actors that are sitting on their hands. I don't really understand why they don't get together. It's very easy to make your own films that's what you want to do yeah hi peter you've been in a lot of good movies um i was wondering how you get to the movies how these movies are offered to you because you've been in a lot of movies you've been in shattered glass blue jasmine black mass and you were just in that nbc show the slap which was really good i'm just wondering and you're also going to be in the magnificent seven how do these roles come to you do you ask for them do you, do you, are you handed scripts? Just the whole process of um, getting the script and learning the role you'll be playing. Well, it's changed over time, right? So when I first started acting, it was actually in some ways better because I would meet with a director. You know, I have an agent and I would get set up with a meeting and, you know, I'd read for them. And if we collaborated well, we would, I'd end up with the role. Now I don't meet with them. Now I get sent roles and it's like a blind date. And a lot of the time they don't even really, you know, they don't think that you want to meet with them before you sign up to the movie. And they're actually surprised when I say, well, why don't we meet first? Oh, but you've been offered the role. I'm like, yeah, but we should kiss before we have sex. You know what I mean? And so I, I know a lot of young actors go like, oh, I can't wait to the place when you know, things are just offered to me. The more powerful you get, you can actually get into a position where you could play parts that are not right for you just because you're financing their movie. You know, they go like, oh, he could play the, you know, the whale. And I'm like, eh, you know, not so much. So. Hello, Peter, thanks for being here. Uh, one of the most interesting insights I'd heard into acting um, ever came from you a few years back, and I've told this story so many times. Uh, it was about Blue Jasmine, and you were talking about how Woody Allen gives pages to actors of the, of the script of, of only the scenes that they're in. And because of Kate Blanchett's incredible performance, and because you absolutely had no context into her character, you thought that perhaps she may have been having a nervous breakdown in real life in certain scenes. And it fascinated me, how do you approach a scene in which you have no real context other than the immediacy of that scene? It's really hard. I mean, I couldn't understand how I was proposing marriage to her when we had had no real scenes of us falling in love, you know, but with, I normally would not be interested in doing that because to me it's a way of disempowering an actor. But, you know, with Woody Allen, you just sort of go like, he's made some good movies, I think we'll just roll the dice and see. And I did think she was having a very hard time. I thought she was, you know, I, I kept kind of going like, he would go away and I go, you're really good. Don't worry, you're so good. 
It's going to be okay. I don't care what he says. What a jerk. You know? <laughs> so. Um, I just had a question in regards to the this famous experiment. Um, if you personally, how you feel about the ethics of what was going on, and if you had preconceived notions going into it, and if that changed through the course of the process. Yeah, you know, I guess I think it was different in the early 60s when this experiment was done. You know, coming out of the 50s, which to me, I didn't live in the 50s, I'm born in 1971, but my idea of the 50s was it was a time where people were not investigating with real vigor the dark sides of their lives, that I imagine it more like... Um, you know, like what you see in movies where everyone's got their shirt tucked in and the lawn is mowed. So I, I think that it felt, um, it felt rough. It felt like we don't want to know these things about ourselves. Now I feel like we live in a world where people go like, it's okay to know everything that I'm capable of. It doesn't make me a bad person to know that I'm capable of doing bad things. That's actually good information. You know, wouldn't you rather know that you have it in you to do this? Isn't that the way that we actually solve problems by knowing that we have them in the first place? Now, in terms of the ethics of doing it, he couldn't have done the experiment if he had said, uh, these shocks aren't real. We're going to pretend that you're shocking someone else in the other room, and hopefully we'll learn something. I mean, it just wouldn't have happened. However, when I talk to um, social psychologists today, a lot of them say that this particular experiment set them back for a period of time just because of the public reaction to it and made it more difficult to do other experiments for a certain period of time. Um, but I, we live in a much different world now. Actually, there was uh, a program in France called Le Jeu de Mort, The Game of Death, where they did this to an unsuspecting person in front of a live studio audience that was egging them on, that knew that <laughs> it wasn't real, but the person up there thought it was, and the audience was like going, come on, you know. So it's a rougher world now, in my opinion, but that could also be because I didn't live in the 50s, you know. Hi there. I was wondering if any of the original subjects of the experiment were involved in the movie at all, either with like consulting or actually appeared in the film. Yeah. Actually, um, there were several people who were either students or involved in the uh, original experiments that were in the film. One interesting thing about the movie is almost none of it is made up. Michael had this real clear idea that we would take either things that were in the written record or things that his wife said, his brother said, the test subject said actually happened, have them try to remember them as they actually happened, and then we would repeat them and fit them into this kind of, you know, this, you haven't seen it, but this film is not structured like an ordinary film. It is not boring, but it is not a, it is not a story arc that keeps you involved. So it could handle like a kind of tangent into some story that Sasha told us happened. Um, so, and at times I would say, this dialogue feels really weird to me. And he'd go like, actually, there's a video <laughs> of them saying it. And that's what was, not a video, a film, because he shot a lot of films. This is what was said. Saying, so oh, great, 
well, just because it was actually said doesn't mean it should be said in the movie, you know, but that's shooting it in 20 days using only, you know, like original dialogue is kind of, um, you know, that Lars von Trier idea of like having a bunch of uh, obstructions, you know, that interesting things are made by tying your hands behind your back. Thank you for such a brilliant career so far and uh, best of luck and stuff for the future. When playing such an iconic guy like this, he had the six degrees of separation, do you find it challenging at moments when you are portraying someone that is as um, noticeable in the public eye? Yeah, I don't like it. You know, I, I don't like playing real people, strictly speaking, and especially don't like playing famous real people. But I have three movies out right now, and I play th real people in all three of them. This is more has to do with what Hollywood is interested in uh, than what I'm interested in. Um, I tend to cut myself a break and not worry about it too much, you know. Um, there was one scene that I did with an actor playing Dick Cavett in it. I felt really sorry for him because, I mean, how the hell do you play Dick Cavett? I mean, he's Dick Cavett. And plus, even for me when I was in that scene with him, because that interview is very famous, I, I, that was my least favorite scene to do because, you know, his behavior is quite interesting in the interview. Dick Cavett is really going at him about the ethics of what he did. He's quite defensive. He's sitting there in a certain way. And, you know, you think like, do I have to imitate that behavior? I don't really want to do that. Um, I usually don't worry about it. I just go like, somebody can go watch the original Dick Cavett thing if they want to. You know, I, I recommend it. We should say that uh, Experimenter opens tomorrow. It is also going to be available on VOD. And for you Apple enthusiasts, it will be on iTunes. Um, we should thank Mr. Peter Sarsgaard for this exceptional piece of work, operating at well above 30% in his career. Peter Sarsgaard, give it up. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>